Help support this network and become a member. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for details. It's just $7.99 USD per month or save on an annual membership. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support education and outreach. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Welcome to our 82nd episode of the Rock Art Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and we have a really a, a nice treat. We've got Stephen Brine, who's a professional archaeologist, who's going to talk about his enthusiasm and his relationship to rock art. And he's also going to reflect upon his uh, visits to over 100 Chumash rock art sites and his two visits to the great mural rock art sites in Sierra de San Francisco, Mexico. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and we have Stephen Bryan as our guest scholar today. And he's an enthusiastic rock art aficionado who's just returned from a California Rock Art Foundation visit to the hinterland in the Sierra de San Francisco uh, to see the great mural rock art, some of the largest prehistoric paintings in the world. Stephen, are you with us? Yes, sir. I'm here. Good. So how the heck did you get involved with uh, the study of rock art and uh, an interest in rock art? I presume that this is something that's uh, been burbling up with you uh, for quite some time. Yeah, thank you. I first became interested in rock art in the in the San Francisco Bay Area with some of the petroglyph sites up up in that area. Mostly they're known as the PCN boulders, which are petroglyphs, you know, carved into mostly like chlorite schist boulders in the Bay Area. And those are the ones that sort of have a have an odd look to them. They're they're like cupules, but not exactly because they have some sort of circle, but then in the center they have this kind of convexity am i correct yeah they're they're made by like subtraction in the rock and so th- usually it's like a round ring that's that protrudes from the rock sometimes there's a kind of a nipple in the middle but yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. They're found around the Bay Area, particularly around on the Tiburon Peninsula. Uh huh. And so, uh, did you did you visit those? Did you read about them? Did you connect with some other researchers who knew something about? I these? did. Yeah. I, I, I. There's a thesis about the petroglyphs in the Corte Madera area, and I visited some of the sites there. And I, I was kind of tangentially involved with the Bay Area Rock Art Association, but was never really a member. But I did go on some trips, some members, and that's kind of what got me interested in rock art. And then, well, in 2009, I moved to Southern California and was working in Carpinteria and got uh, interested in some of the Chumash rock art through, through friends that were interested in it. And so and then subsequently got, you know, involved with craft and went on. I've been on some of your trips. How many trips did you go on so far? Well, I, I went to Tomokani. I went to Little Lake. And then I've also been a member of a, an association in the L.A. Ventura area called Landven. I don't know if you've heard of that. Okay. Never heard of it. That's But that's nice. Is that a rock art group? Well, it's not specifically rock art, but Al Knight is a, you know, a member and he's, Uh you know, he's, he's, he took the group on a lot of, well, a number of trips to rock art sites in the Santa Monica mountains and, and some in the Antelope Valley. And yeah, that's, so that was also kind of an introduction into the rock art of, you know, the Southern California. Yeah. Well, Al Knight is a legend because of his uh, passion for rock art. Needless to say, quite a remarkable scholar and uh, very ambitious and enthusiastic. There's also kind of a nexus with Campbell Grant because he was a resident of Carpinteria. And, you know, he wrote the the rock paintings of of the Chumash and uh, also the rock art of Baja California. So there's kind of an underlying theme maybe. But since he was a resident of Carpinteria, there's a museum in Carpinteria that has some of his original artwork and, oh, wow. you know, his his book that he illustrated is, is you know, a kind of a landmark book now, although it's, you know, somewhat sure. dated. But but his artwork is in his interpretation of the rock art, I think, is really, you know, noteworthy. Well, that's fantastic. So it sounds like because of your pre-existing associations and partly because of the geography you had an opportunity to uh, see some rather remarkable sites. Which of these sites were you most impressed with? And what particular aspects of the sites really uh, were, were so that you became riveted to and maybe wanted to know more about? Well, that's a good question. I mean, a lot of the Chumash rock art is pretty inaccessible. And so you really have to make an effort to get to you know, most of the sites, some of the sites like Painted Cave near uh, San Marcos Pass are, you know, you can drive to, mm-hmm. although, although they're, you know, iron bars ac- across the mouth of the cave. But um, most of the sites are kind of in the hinterlands of the mountains, essentially. And so you, you really got to make an effort to, to get to a lot of the sites. You know, one of the sites that's not fairly accessible is Arrowhead Springs. And, mm-hmm. you know, Bill, Bill Hyder recently wrote a kind of a treatise on that site, which is in the front, what they call the front country of Santa Barbara, meaning it's on kind of the yeah. front, front side of the range. But that site is, you know, it's fairly small, but it's very impre- it's a very impressive site because it's 
it's on a big rock face right where a spring emanates from, you know, the mountains at the very side of the spring. And so it's it's obviously, a, you know, like a sacred site. I, I don't think anybody would argue about that. And, and thanks to Bill, thanks to Bill's uh, research and his uh, intensive study, of course, Kraft put out a monograph yes. about that particular site. And that's a remarkable book that he did because it, I think it uh, tries to weave a story. I think part of the cognitive neuroscience, landscape archaeology, also the sacred narratives associated with it, but as, as well sort of talking about the animistic and shamanistic elements of the uh, entire series of panels. So it was a rather tour de force, don't you think? I, I do. I think he did a really good job at, at tying everything together, you know, the placement of the site and the, the you know, the mythology kind of that might might be associated with it. And yeah, it's just kind of a remarkable site. It's got some aquatic, you know, features. And to me, one of the things that is kind of appeals to me about rock art and, and particularly the Chumash rock art, but it's it's not just the the motifs or the art itself, but it's it's the location. And so I'm I'm always when I go to a site, I'm looking not just at the rock art, but I'm looking around to see, you know, where is this site placed and why I, I always ask the question, why here? But I mean, there's obviously not always an answer, but. It's, you know, I think the places themselves have a, you know, a significance, even though, you know, we may not be able to, to identify it at the, at the time. You know, I, I agree totally. I guess a, a burgeoning aspect, uh, sort of a subdiscipline of archaeology is this new study of what they call landscape archaeology. And part of that is sort of interfingered with the study of rock art now and trying to understand, as you were saying, why a particular place was selected and how that place is incorporated into sort of the dynamic, mysterious, and powerful nature of that particular artistic representation. And again, that's kind of the, one of the keystones of trying to understand some of these sites is, as you say, dealing with the the natural landforms and the way in which that was used to sort of ensconce the rock art. Am I correct? Yeah, I believe so. And sometimes the the place itself is just so remarkable that you know it. You can understand why the native people would have maybe put a mark on it. And there's an example of that uh, in the San Inez Mountains where there's a rock art, quite a famous rock art site. And I don't know if I should, you know, talk about the name or the location too much because, you know, the locations are protected, but it's, it's on a huge sandstone outcropping that looks like a giant molar, you know, and and it's, it's, it's in Campbell Grant's book, but, Uh you know, and there's, and there's a Tinaha or a natural pool in the top of the rock and Uh the rock itself is probably, I don't know, 50, 75 feet high. And, you know, and so it's, it's a monolith, you know, on its own and, and very remarkable on its own without, without having the artwork on it or around it. But, you know, so some places are, are just so distinctive that 
you know, you can you can maybe understand why why that plays. Well, I think that the native people from my my reading of uh, certainly ethnography or talking to some of them who have something to say about them, and that is the the places that were selected. I think they believe in some instances certainly were selected or that they spoke to them and they spoke to them about their power and their, their energy and their particular magnificence and that these particular unusual rock outcrops uh, sometimes, you know, become the sites for either petroglyphs, either rock drawings or rock paintings and Sometimes it's rather, as you said, it's rather transparent and easy to easy to see why a particular place might have attracted native people and been a, a canvas for their efforts. Exactly, I I agree. So of the of the sites that you saw, or of the particular places you've been, and we'll hold off talking about your recent experiences in Baja. From Southern California, Northern California, which places, I guess, were the most memorable? Those you can't stop thinking about. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's why I mentioned Arrowhead Springs, because it, it's it's just kind of a remarkable site. I, I, have you been there, Alan? I have not, no. Well, it's got an incredible viewscape because it's looking out okay. over the Channel, Channel Islands from, you know, probably. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't know the, the elevation off the top of my head, but I, I'd say it's, you know, around 2,000 feet or 1,800 feet, probably, you know, uh -huh. in elevation. And you're looking out through the forest at the, you know, the Channel Islands and, and the Santa That's Barbara amazing. Channel. Yeah. yeah. And then being at the spring that emanates from the earth, you know, with this kind of amazing vertical rock there. It's just, you know, it's kind of an iconic site, I think. But there yeah. are many that, I mean, all of them kind of are unique in their own way. I, I you know, I'd hesitate to try and grade, grade these sites. I've probably been to a hundred Chumash rock art sites, you know, around that. Oh, I had no idea that you were, you, <laughs> that, that's quite an inventory to have visited that many sites amongst the Chumash, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a long list, but. Because a lot of those are very difficult to get to. Yeah. I'd say most of them are very good, difficult to get to. Only a handful are really, yes. you know, easily accessible and, and are, you know, right. visited, visited more so than others. But I, I mean, some other sites that kind of spring to mind, uh, Tinta Cave is quite intriguing to me. I, I don't know if you've heard of this cave, Alan, but mm -hmm. it's. Is that a Chumash site? It is, and it's it's kind of in the Kuyama area, okay. but it, it's a very high elevation site. It's mm -hmm. I would say it's probably at least a, a couple of thousand feet high. I don't I don't know the elevation off the top of my head, but you know the thinking back in the day was that a lot of these sites or the rock art sites were associated with with springs or were near water. That was a common kind of thinking. This one is, sure. it's not near any, any water source. It's a long way from any water source. And it's just kind of isolated on this side of, you know, near the top of a, a ridge. But again, with a commanding view of the uh, area, but, you know, it kind of breaks the mold that people assumed that, that sites, and, and a lot of them are close to water, 
there's no doubt about that or no question about that but but some are not not anywhere near water and that and that's the case with the Tinto rock art site and I guess it makes it more, more mysterious huh it does and and that site is also very difficult to get to so you you know you have to climb up a couple of thousand feet and there's there's no trail so you're going off trail and you know it's very steep and, and rocky so it just getting there in and of itself is, you know, kind of a labor. It's, the, it's part of the adventure, right? It is, yeah. Well, I think that's all we have for the first segment. And uh, in the second segment, we'll, we're going to go deeper into uh, perhaps the, the motivation and the indication of what prompted Stephen Bryan to uh, go see the Great Mural Rock Art. See you in the flip-flop, gang. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello out there in archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel with Rock Art Podcast, episode 82. And Stephen Bryan is with us, an enthusiastic rock art avocationalist and professional archaeologist. And uh, he has recently returned from the outback in the hinterland of the what I like to call the, the Grand Canyon of Mexico. <laughs> Stephen. Yes. You, you, made, you made it back, correct? Yes, I did. In, in, one, in, one, in one piece. You probably heard yeah, stories no. about, about my experiences down there. Yes. You know, this was my second, second trip. I first went in 2019. And oh, you did? Yeah. Were those both craft trips? Yes. Oh my word! Okay, who who was the um, craft member or the archaeologist who Ryan Gerstner in both for both trips in both? Oh well, you get, you got a pretty good leader or facilitator. He's a yeah, he's, he's a bit of a treasure. We, I call him. We were roommates on the first first trip. You were roommates. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my word! On the first word. trip, we shared a room, and also Ryan's parents came, which was made it oh kind of interesting. Word. Yeah. Wow. But we had a great time. Well, that must have been very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So on the first trip, what particular sites did you see? or And, and maybe just be able to sort of paint a word picture of the preparations and the circumstances of, of kind of dealing with the nature of access and what goes on, what goes into a trip like this. Sure. Well, just as far as background, I was interested in, you know, going down to Baja for some some years because, again, because of the nexus, the Campbell Grant nexus 
him having traveled down there and written a book about it and being a Carpinteria resident. And I had his book and, you know, I was familiar with some of the other texts from there. So I, I'd wanted to go. And then I saw that Kraft was offering a trip in, in 2019 to, to the Sierra de, de San Francisco. And uh, so I signed up and basically flew, flew to Loreto. And then we were, uh, the participants were picked up by Trudy, who runs Saddling South. And, and we were driven to uh, Mulahay, where we stayed. And, and then from there, we took a van to visit the, some various rock art sites in, in the Sierra de San Francisco, in particular, Paral Canyon. But like you, like you mentioned, Ellen, th- these canyons are kind of fantastic in their own right. They're very deep, uh, you know, probably 2,000 feet deep canyons, and they're very inaccessible, even on foot which is why you have to take a mule or, you know, or horseback down, down into the canyons, or that's how the, the local people get there. And that's what we did. So when do you, when do you meet your mule? <laughs> how does that, how does that work? So basically the, the, the way this system is set up, you, you have to get a permit from ENA, which is, you know, the Mexican uh, national organization and that's usually in the nearest village to the rock art site you're going to to visit. Okay. And, and you, and unless you're, you know, unless the site's within walking distance of the village, then you're going to take a mule to, to the site. And that's what we did. We, we took the van to a small village, and and that's where we met the the vaqueros. The, the, those are the the guys uh-huh. that run the run the mules and the burros. Yeah, yeah. And they they select a mule for you based on you know basically your body weight or or if you've ridden before and and you you get that mule for the entire trip. How many participants were there on the trip? The first trip, let me see, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. On the 2019 trip. I think there were nine, nine participants on oh, in wow. 2019. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, so everybody, gets, everybody gets their mule. You met the vaqueros. And then uh, you jump on the mule. And what happens next? Well, so you, you take your personal gear with you on the mule, just whatever you need for the day. And right. that that might be – in a backpack or in saddlebags. And then there's, there's a pack train essentially that goes along with the, the mules. And, and those are donkeys or burros that are loaded with, you know, all the camping gear, the cooking gear, food, et cetera, you know? And, and so the burros do a lot of the work because they're hauling all the, all the equipment and, and the vaqueros will drive the burros either in front or behind the the group of riders and some vaqueros ride horses, some, but most ride mules. And the mules themselves are just amazing animals. They, they're able to walk on th- this very uneven, rocky surface, and, and they're not frightened at all of extreme drop-offs, you know, on, on either side of the trail. And they're very sure-footed. I, I asked Trudy, I believe the first trip, I said, you know, have you ever seen a, a mule falter or fall or anything on, on one of your trips? And, and she said, well, no, I, I, I've never seen one fall. One, one did go down to its knees once, but, you know, and that gave me a lot of confidence because they, they're just extremely sure-footed beasts. 
Yeah. What about the burrows? Are they sure-footed or do they, they sometimes uh, uh, have some problems? They are very sure-footed also, but they have a mind of, of their own and they tend to uh-huh. wander. And so they really have to herd the burrows, the vaqueros make an effort to, you know, keep them in line. The burrows tend to wander off whenever they get a chance. And so that it's always, they're always trying to, you know, corral the burrows or keep them on track. But I see. one of the, one of the riders was explaining to me on this trip, she was a horsewoman. So she has horses and mules here in the United States, but she told me that mules, you know, are very stubborn, hence, hence the term stubborn as a mule. But right. Uh, and so you can't make a mule do what it it doesn't want to do. It will it just physically will not go some places. Whereas she said a horse, you can make a horse do anything. You can make a horse jump off a cliff. But, you know, contrarily, a mule will never do that. And so hmm. you have to trust the mule and, in, 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 you know, trust its innate ability to navigate these, you know, steep a canyon walls, essentially. So the burrows themselves follow in some sort of a pack train, and and they're fairly sure-footed as well. So you've got this very long uh, dog and pony show going on with all these burrows, all these participants, vaqueros. How many vaqueros are, are there? There's usually a vaquero for, you know, for each participant because – they essentially rent the the mules to yeah. Trudy for for each trip, and uh-huh. and then and then they have you know burrows too that they are in charge of. So okay, you know I, I'd say it's like a one to one ratio kind of. Okay, thing. interesting. We did have an, a kind of an amazing a young woman who was the daughter of one of the vaqueros, and his son also accompanied us this trip, and he the uh-huh. son. I believe he was 10 and the daughter was 18 and they, you know, they can ride in rope and do everything. It's, they're just amazing. So that was kind of an added bonus for this trip, I, I think. So they're, they're as adept as the vaqueros that have learned from their parents, mainly yep. from the men, I would believe, how to uh, ride and rope and steer and do all the different things that the vaqueros have to do to, uh, commandeer this particular show going down into these canyons is you know say it was an all-day ride this year to get down into the bottom of the canyon where you know the rock art sites are and and that's the only only way in and out so the residents of the small village where we stayed i asked how many residents there were and i think they said the population was six or six or ten so it's a very small village, but there's no way in or out other than riding a, you know, a, a horse or a, a burrow or a very long walk. So these, you know, the villages that are in the bottoms of these canyons are extremely remote. Now, these villages of which the, there's a very small number of people that live in this area of Sierra de San Francisco, these Pueblitos. How do they live and what uh, what's the uh, economic basis for them to yeah. uh, allow them to continue? That's a really good question. So there's really only one industry that we we saw and that's that's herding goats and and also making goat cheese or making cheese from the goat's milk. And I we see. saw, you know, they 
they showed us some of the cheese making that they do and they they produce a really fresh cheese that's kind of the consistency of like a mozzarella cheese and and we bought some cheese this trip mm-hmm. from from the people that were making it and they also slaughtered two goats on this trip to to make a birria which is the goats the traditional goat stew and that was that was for of one of the vicaras had a birthday and so they you know they kind of combined our trip and the birthday and had a kind of a fiesta with with the goats too so that that was quite amazing too i'll bet that was wonderful it was the economy is really limited because the the environment is pretty harsh it's it's essentially desert well it is that's the viscaino desert and so there's not enough forage for even a horse to to exist on or, or, or cattle. So only really only goats or other, or maybe sheep. I'm not sure. I didn't see any sheep, but goats, goats are the main, you know, industry there. And each, each vaquero has a herd of goats as well that he manages or his family manages. And, and that's, that's their subsistence for the most part. So when you were there, you spent time with these uh, Pueblitos and, and the families. And what particular sites did you see in 2019? So let's see. In 2019, we started off at San Borjita. I, I believe it's the southernmost great, great mural site. And that, that's just kind of on its own. But when we went into the, the Sierra de San Francisco and, and Peral Canyon, we we visited Cuesta del pa- Palmerito, or Palmerito is quite a famous site. Cor- Coralito is another fairly well-known site. And then the, probably the, the two most famous were Cueva de la Ser- Serpiente, or Serpent's Cave, and Supernova, or it's also known as La Clarita. And they were there in the heart of the Sierra de San Francisco, correct? Yes, sir. So the largest site was the was the one that had some uh, interpretation on it, and that's when you went to in 2019 or no? Well, Cueva de la Serpiente is probably the most famous of those, and that has okay. this, you know, giant serpent mural that's been interpreted on the wall of the uh, rock shelter. I see. And and how big is that uh, picture? I, I, I understand that these are some of the largest uh, animal depictions in the world, some of them, correct? Yes, I believe so. Let's see. I'm I'm looking for my notes on Serpiente. Let's see the the mural. I, I believe the the mural or the painting of the the serpent is 26 feet long. So it's oh it's my quite, word, it's enormous. Know, yeah, it's huge. That's huge. Ron Smith, a previous re- researcher, has has done a paper on on just this site and interpreting this this particular pictograph right so yeah he he's, he uh, did a, a handful maybe half a dozen different uh, articles and rather remarkable research sort of integrating sacred narrative and ethnography and and other anthropologically relevant information and i thought that his I think his articles were some of the most more interesting ones that i'd read yeah I I took a couple of notes on him and in his interpretation of the serpent cave and and he had started visiting Baja in 1979 which is 
you know, quite a while ago. And he, he put a lot of effort into this particular site and wrote an article about it. But he he kind of interpreted this site, the, the native people, the Kochimi, have six seasons. And the Probably one of the important seasons is is when they harvest the the pitaya, the fruit, this cactus fruit, which is a big. That was probably their most important food source, and the serpent was, according to him, was the bringer of the pitaya fruit. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating, and that and that and that does jive with a lot of our understanding cross culturally about animal ceremonialism and metaphor. Well, we've run out of time for the second uh, segment. And then the last one, I, I hope that we can sort of uh, drill down and talk about what you learned and what you saw on this most recent trip. Sure. See you in the flip-flop, gang. We've got regular live events coming up that we don't want you to miss. Head over to our new parent website, Culturo, and check out the live events calendar. We're ramping it up slowly, so bookmark and check back often. That's culturomedia.com with a K. Once again, that's culturomedia.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey gang, here's the final segment. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, for episode 82 and we're blessed to have a remarkable gentleman who's a, an enthusiastic archaeologist who has been studying rock art and visiting over 100 rock art sites. And he's going to tell us a bit about his recent experiences down with the Great Mural Rock Art on a trip sponsored by the California Rock Art Foundation. You uh, decided to go back again after 2019. Yes, I, I did, but to a different area that we didn't visit before. Okay. And so this is a totally different area. Yes. This trip, we visited San Gregorio Canyon, which is in the same range, but a different different canyon and different access. Mm-hmm. And how did it differ? How did it, how did it differ geologically or, or uh, you know, floristically or... Or uh, even in terms of the the kinds of rock art that you saw. Well, the trip was amazing. I mean, they were both amazing trips, and and quite they're very different because of just visiting different sites. And the whole experience is is kind of immersive because you have to go, you know, on on muleback, not on horseback, but on muleback. I asked if you could ride a burro, and they said it's possible, but but you're your feet might hit the ground because the burrows are fairly small. So they, they prefer that you ride a mule. So it looks like it's a mule, right? If you want to ride, <laughs> get, on, get on that mula. That's right. And apparently the mules are bred differently in Mexico than they are in, in the U.S. In, the, in what way? The father of the mule is a burro in Mexico, whereas okay. in the U.S. the father is the horse. Okay. So, you know, it's a cross between a, a, a burrow and a horse, but they, they apparently they do that to, because the, the mules 
in Mexico are a little bit more docile than the mules in, in the U.S. are. Yeah. So just a little a tidbit, but a little, little little bit of a difference. So yeah. So you're so you're on your mule. You're you're in a different place, a different spot. You're still camping. Your vehicles are gone. You're descending these two thousand, three thousand foot canyons. And what do you end up seeing? Well, that's a good description because we did leave the village behind and we rode about, uh, we rode for several hours and had a camp the first night. And it was just kind of a, a convenient place to camp before we dropped down into the canyon. And so the second day was a full day's ride down into the canyon itself. And and as you descend down into the canyon, it's it's very steep. The trail in, in places we had to actually get off the mules because it was too steep for the mules to or too dangerous for them to carry you as they're going down at, at you know extremely steep section of rock. But I I always I always thought that was very funny. Funny? Yeah, funny because we're, we're, we're trying to, uh, you know, navigate the trails and, you know, protect ourselves from any sort of danger, right? Yes. And then when we get to certain places, they tell us, well, this is too dangerous for the mules. <laughs> and, and we need you to get off the mule <laughs> so, they can nav- so they can navigate this trail. So if it's too dangerous for the mules, how is it for the humans? <laughs> right. Well, those mules are, you know, they're worth a lot of money to the oh, yeah, exactly. local people. You know, they don't they don't want to risk sure, the mules. Sure, sure. But oh, we no, did have not. one participant who was a little too reticent or afraid to ride his mule, and he ended up walking the entire route. Uh-huh. Yeah, most of them. I'd say 90% of the route. So he, he just never became comfortable on the mule or didn't trust the, you know, didn't trust the mule to. And so what did he do? Walk along the side? He just walked on his own and, you know, he, he made it fine, but yeah. It's a lot of So that's, that's always an option, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I guess so. So you saw some spectacular sights that you hadn't seen before. Yeah. So as you descend down into these canyons, there starts to be water as you get towards the bottoms of the canyons. And then in the bottoms of the canyons, a lot of, you know, in a lot of cases, they're actually oases where, you know, they're palm oases with uh, other, you know, other plants that you you don't see up above in, in the desert terrain because, you know, these are shady shady like well-watered canyons and that's that's where the villages are too and that's where that's where the rock art sites are for them for the most part so you you get to one of these canyons with the oases and so tell us about one of these great mural rock art sites that you saw okay well in in san gregorio we visited a couple of the great mural sites um they're called San Gregorio 1 and San Gregorio 2. And those are both fairly close by, but again, huge murals. And and just some of the characteristics of this this giant, uh, giant rock art, you know, there are a lot of red and black anthropomorphs. Those are human-like figures. A, a lot of times they'll be bisected so half will be half of the figure vertically will be black and half like will be wearing pants. Half will be red. No, well, some some are are horizontally bisected, but a lot of them are vertically right through right through their you know the ventral area. 
but the subjects include, you know, what look like humans or anthropomorphs. They're animals, um, spears or spear-like lines. There are some smaller fi- figures. There's some colorful grids in checkerboards. And the animals include deer and bighorn sheep. And for the most part, the humans stand erect with outstretched arms. And those are just some kind of commonalities between these great mural sites. The colors are mostly red and black and sometimes yellow. And, and sometimes, uh, I, sometimes I think I remember that. Are, are there sometimes uh, any indication of, of uh, the sex of these individuals? Yes. Are they gender, gendered? Yeah. Yeah, some are. Okay. Uh, you, you can see, you know, breasts on some some individuals, and uh-huh. in, 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 you know, phalluses on some. And and are they are they, are they all mature, or are there any sort of uh, immature or or uh, children that are also identifying? They all, I, as far as I know, they most most appear to be adults. I, I didn't see any, you know, obvious children or smaller figures. Okay, so they're so they're all pretty much adults. Go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to mention some of the other material culture that that is associated with this Kochimi culture that ostensibly drew these or painted painted these huge murals. They they were known for their their human hair capes. And there's very rare, but are known, the wooden tablets, effigy figures, smoking and sucking pipes, wands of feather, feathers and human hair, bull roars, rattles, belts and collars. Those are just some of the, you know, the, the material culture that you, you can see these days in, in museums, but is, is very rare, but it's associated with the culture. Do you ever see those depicted in the paintings? Yes. I, I know some of the figures had, say, net, net bags. Um, you can see capes on some of the individuals. And one, uh, another interesting thing are these balls that are, are seen on some of the figures. They're black balls that are, say, that look kind of like a, a bowling ball, say, but yeah, yeah. on the shoulders of these individuals. Yeah, uh-huh. or sometimes on the head, but uh-huh. that's nobody really knows the meaning. But it's been interpreted as is fascinating. Yeah, like uh, they may be evidence of like seasonality or or some kind of you know con- constellation or something like that. Yes. So, what do the anthropologists and the archaeologists, both from Mexico and from the states, have to say about their age? and their function well i you know i there have been a lot of interpretations from the anthropologists from the u.s anthropologists i i don't know you know the mexican anthropologists but i know a lot of the the animals that are depicted appear to be you know game animals those being deer and bighorn sheep and some of those are are pierced with with spears or arrows and and so that you know it seems to be some kind of hunting magic or sympathetic magic I, I'm not sure but as far as the interpretation I uh, the San Borjita site I did see that that site was they'd done some radiocarbon dating on it the, the Mexican archaeologists had and and I believe it was uh, let me see if I have the date it was either five I, I believe it was five thousand years old is what they 
had dated it too. Yeah, yeah, very old. Yeah. Very, very old. Very surprising. Cueva de, de uh, la Raton, which we visited, was dated to 2,800 years old. So wow. they're, they're quite, you know, have a time depth. Right. Yeah, so it's amazing. So how are these uh, images ensconced and what are they doing? In other words, I've heard that there's almost like a, a story being told with the uh, paintings or uh, some actually show almost movement. Is that true? Yes. I, I mean, you could kind of, uh, that's been one interp- interpretation that, that there, there are so many figures that they might, might indicate a kind of, of movement, but like the San Borjita site, it's, it's a huge cave. There are 250 or more individual pictographs, which gives you an idea of how many, you know, paintings there are there. And it's a, the cave itself is, is a huge cave. You know, it's approximately 200 feet long by a hundred feet deep. And the entire ceiling is covered with paint, with paintings. And also petroglyphs mm-hmm. in that cave on the side. Really? There's a, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, yonis and, and uh, other petroglyphs in that cave as well. So that would, have, that would certainly, at least in, in at some level of, explanation be associated perhaps with fertility yeah but in that cave there there are many of these large figures they and and harry crosby who did a lot of work there called these figures monos and that that is kind of stuck mono means monkey in spanish so i don't know if that's appropriate anymore but they they still refer to these these anthropomorphs as monos monos Yeah. yeah And, and, and in, in San Borjita, a lot of the, the monos are, are actually punctured with arrows or spears. Mm-hmm. And then there are, there are a lot of aquatic forms that are painted too. Those are either turtles or sharks or rays. And, and so it, it seems like a lot of the, the animals that are, are pictured would have been prey, prey items, but that's just my own interpretation. What could you tell me that would allow other people to get a, a potential flavor or understanding of an experience such as the ones you've had working with the California Rock Art Foundation and attending one of these trips? What was the, uh, what's, what's, the, what's the takeaway? How's that? I, I just say that it's a pretty unique experience to, to be able to go to these, these places. They're very remote and you have to go with a guide and the, the people that run the trips in Baja, Trudy on Hell, and, and her daughter, Olivia, are very experienced. And Trudy's been doing this for around 30 years. And her daughter was born in Baja and raised there and is, you know, bilingual. And so they, they have a, you know, innate or deep knowledge about the, the terrain and the flora and fauna. And that, to me, that adds so much to the trip because, you know, you're, it's an immersive type of thing. You're not just, not just looking at the rock art, but, you know, you're getting to know the environment, you know, you, you're getting to know the, the vaqueros and you know sometimes the the even the political situation you know we we did get stopped by the federales on the road so you know it's it's a little bit of everything but it's it's just a really unique experience and i'm happy you know that craft is is sponsoring these trips and i'd actually like to go back as a guide sometime so that's just a plug for me steven that's a blessing we'd be honored to have you 
as a professional archaeologist and well, someone who's obviously an avid and enthusiastic student student of rock art. So see you all in two weeks. Thank you all for patching in, you rock art podcast enthusiasts. See you in the flip-flop, gang. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening. Please consider joining our growing core of members over at archpodnet.com slash members. If you liked what you heard, consider leaving a review wherever you're listening to this.